Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Tonight, I'm Someone Else is the highly anticipated collection that explores the myriad ways in which desire and commodification intersect. Chelsea Hodson is a graduate of the MFA program at Bennington College and has been awarded fellowships from McDowell Colony and Penn Center USA Emerging Voices. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Freeze Magazine, Black Warrior Review, and elsewhere. She teaches at Catapult in New York and at Mors Tua Vita Mea in Sette Romano, Italy. Wendy Ortiz is the author of Excavation, a Memoir, Hollywood Notebook, and the Dreamoir, Bruja. In 2016, Bustle named her one of nine women writers who are breaking new nonfiction territory. Her work has been featured in the Los Angeles Times, The Rumpus, and the Los Angeles Review of Books, The New York Times, and a year-long series appeared at McSweeney's Internet Tendency. Wendy is a psychotherapist in private practice here in LA. We're delighted to have Chelsea Hudson and Wendy Ortiz here with us this evening. Please join me in giving them a warm welcome. Thank you. Thanks everyone for coming. Um, I'm going to start by reading the first couple of pages of one of the essays. It's called, the essay is called, um, I'm only a thousand miles away. So it's um, a longer essay, but I'm just going to read the, few, the first few pages. When my friend Alexis and I were in the sixth grade, my mother took us to a water park in Phoenix called Sunsplash. My mother sat in the shade, reading, while Alexis and I wandered around, going down the water slides, swimming against the current in the wave pool, and finally floating on inner tubes on the lazy river, a circle of water with a gentle current that looped us around the park. Two boys our age paddled their way up to us. The more attractive one, TJ, tanned with defined abs, began talking to Alexis and her buoyant tits, which were just as mysterious to me as they were to him. Her disproportionately large chest made her bold, and I hoped some of her boldness might make its way to me and my flat-chested boy body. No luck yet. For now, I was talking to the less attractive friend, Freddie, a pale, soft boy with a gentle demeanor. He sat up on his inner tube and showed me his love handles. I asked him to repeat the term, which I'd never heard, and he said, you know, handles for love. <laughs> when it was time to go, we borrowed a pen from the corn dog stand and we all carved our phone numbers into napkins. I hadn't liked Freddie that much in person, but on the phone, I was charmed by his jokes. The calls also gave us the chance to talk about our good-looking friends, who both impressed and terrified us. Last week, TJ's father drove TJ 45 minutes and dropped him off at Alexis's house, and they had made out in her room. The logistics of this seemed impossible to Freddie and me, and yet we knew it was the truth. 
Our friends were the kind of people who made things happen, and we were the kind who waited for other people's magic to touch us. Freddie and I pieced together both sides of their stories until we'd imagined the event so thoroughly that it became ours too. I liked the way the phone connected my voice to someone else's without a real commitment. It was casual, like instant messaging. I'd let silence fill the line if I had nothing to say or if I wanted to think before continuing. My calls could last hours until the phone ran out of battery and beeped and I had to quickly say goodbye before placing the phone back in its holster on the wall next to my bed. My phone was made of translucent lime green plastic and it brightened with a red LED light each time it rang. I shared a phone line with our computer's dial-up modem so I could be either on the phone or on the internet, but I had to choose. After a few months, Freddie and I ran out of things to talk about, since we knew our parents would never drive 45 minutes to drop us off at the other's house. We'd never kiss, and our friends would likely never kiss again. Eventually, the light stayed unlit. Fan mail had been my primary mode of communication with boys up until that point, passing notes in class. In fifth grade, I fell deeply in love with Taylor Hansen, the androgynous middle brother in Hansen who played the keyboard, sang like a girl, and frankly, looked a lot like me. When my bitter music teacher, Mr. Bell, real name, mocked them for being superficial pop stars, I argued, actually, they write all their own songs. <laughs> I remember sitting at my desk in my bedroom with a piece of notebook paper and an envelope I'd addressed to an official Hanson fan club that I'd found online. I also had a map of the United States and a ruler. One inch meant 100 miles, so I counted out 10 inches from Phoenix to Tulsa, where Taylor lived. And I began the letter, Dear Taylor, I'm only a thousand miles away from where you are. It seemed like a manageable distance, the kind that could be traveled through sheer will. One day, we would meet, and he would know what I knew, that I was young, sure, but I was the only one who could really love him. I never saw Hanson in concert. I never got a letter back. And loving Taylor became so deeply uncool that I gave up and found a replacement. By sixth grade, I was in love with one of the Backstreet Boys, Brian, the seemingly asexual, non-threatening Christian who loved playing basketball. Alexis loved AJ, which was no surprise since he was the clearly designated bad boy of the group. Our friend Casey loved Nick, the obvious heartthrob with blue eyes and a blonde bowl cut. My love for Brian was fierce, and it was perpetuated by Alexis and Casey, since the group was our main topic of conversation. We wrote entire notebooks full of stories, in which we were in high school with the Backstreet Boys before they were famous. Chapter by chapter, they fell in love with us. Even if we'd known the term, we would never have dared to call what we wrote fan fiction, because that would imply the stories weren't true. And though we knew we invented everything, it seemed true to us, or it seemed true to me. Alexis and Casey loved admiring the Backstreet Boys, 
but I secretly thought of myself as the most devoted of us. What I wrote wasn't meant to be entertaining, it was meant to change fate's course. I knew how famous they were, and that they were in their 20s while we were only 13, but it's hard to explain how close they felt. I filled an entire wall with magazine photos of the Backstreet Boys, and I looked at them with such focus, and for such long periods of time, that it became like a prayer. It was the first time in my life that I remember feeling physical side effects of longing. I preferred to ache than to feel nothing at all. Someday, I would reach out and touch Brian, and he would touch me. But when? My mother took Alexis, Casey, and me to see the Backstreet Boys in concert about a year after our obsession began. I wrote Brian's nickname, B-Rock, on my forehead in metallic blue eyeliner, and Alexis wrote AJ's nickname, Bone, on hers. Inside the stadium, it was mostly girls like us and our mothers filling the stadium with our electricity. Casey said, we're about to breathe the same air as them, and we screamed. We were seated at least 200 feet away from the stage, but we yelled their names as if they could hear us. They sang all our favorite songs, but I spent the entire show distracted, waiting for Brian to look at me. And then, toward the end of the show, he waved in my direction, and I felt it. He looked at me, I screamed in Casey's ear. Did you see that? A few hours later, around midnight, I was in bed, listening to the radio, trying to fall asleep. I loved pop music, of course, but the radio station I had playing that night was the alternative rock station that played at least one Nirvana song every hour. <laughs> the DJ announced, Ladies and gentlemen, we have Nick Carter in the studio this evening. Yes, that's Nick Carter from the Backstreet Boys. I immediately sat up in my bed to listen. He was there promoting his friend's rock band. I didn't wait to hear the details. I picked up my phone and dialed the number. Everyone in my house was asleep, so I kept the volume on my stereo low, and I kept my ear next to the speaker as the phone rang. Someone at the radio station picked up and asked if I would please hold. I said yes and waited. Nick played his friend's band song, which I don't remember, and then they started letting callers talk to Nick. About five calls in, I heard the DJ and my phone say the same thing. Hello, you're on the air with Nick Carter. My adrenaline was pumping hard. I didn't know how to say what I actually wanted to say, which was, will you tell Brian that I love him? <laughs> I was old enough to know that was impolite, so I settled on a breathless, I just want to say that I love you and Brian. <laughs> I was at your concert tonight, and it was amazing. The DJ and Nick laughed and thanked me and hung up. I lay in my dark room with the radio still playing, but I wasn't listening. Having just seen the Backstreet Boys play to a sea of girls, and mentally multiplying that by the number of cities I knew they toured in, Brian had started to feel farther away than usual. But now, I brought him closer again. Nick would tell Brian that I loved him, and then he'd know. Thank you. So, um, 
Before we get started, I'm super glad that you read from that because I wrote down a couple of quotes from that particular essay. But before we get started, I want to just um, kind of outline very briefly that we know each other, and this is like, for us, it could be like a real conversation. <laughs> yeah. um, and I'm hopefully going to ask questions that you want to be informed about, but you'll also have an opportunity at the end to ask questions. So I hope that I'm asking the right kind of questions for you. Um, She's a, th a therapist, so she will. <laughs> um, so one of the lines from that particular essay that I love was what I wrote wasn't meant to be entertaining. It was meant to change fate's course. And to me, when I read that, I thought like, this is, this actually feels like it, it. It's a like there's a drumbeat of this through the book on some level. Um, I don't know if you can speak to that, but it it feels like that is a motivator. That's something that maybe you write from. I don't know. That yeah. You want to you mean to change fate's course? I definitely have always gotten the sense that you're not here to just be entertaining. For <laughs> no. Um, yeah, I think that line in particular shows my flair to be like a drama queen too, so it's like that's definitely a, a theme. Um, but yeah, you know, it's kind of funny, but it is it is meant to be serious. It's like this, because in that essay I wanted to show how, you know, I've always seen fandom, especially in terms of teen girls and boy bands, um, be portrayed as like kind of silly and hysterical. and. Um, for me, it was much more. It was much deeper than that, and um, to me, it felt almost dangerous. <laughs> so again, I know that sounds dramatic, but that's like how it felt to me. Of like, you know, this way of looking at something so intensely that you bring it closer to you. So the looking is um, similar to the writing, I think. Yeah. So like, you know, I have the fan fiction um, with my friends, and then the concert, and the looking at the photos on the wall, um, to me that does seem like the way that I write, actually. <laughs> you know, it's like all these different things and it's um, it's meant to be intense, like it's me I think that intensity can make something interesting and kind of um, create or show something new um, in the act of looking at it and thinking about it. I think that that's been clear from the very beginning, like when I think about Pity the Animal, like initially, has anybody here read Pity the Animal? Do you have it? Oh. It's so intense, I mean it's intense. It's a very, yeah. like to me it's a very quiet, sustained intensity. And so to know that you were going to create this book of essays, which I want to know the whole story about the book of essays, <laughs> but like to sustain that essay to essay is remarkable and I feel like you've done it in this book. Um, I also want to just point out another line from that particular essay that you didn't, it, it's, it's at the very last line actually of that essay. Mm -hmm. um, I learned one new language each day. There's a lot of talk about learning languages, different, and different things that you're learning. There's a lot of lessons that come up in, in the book. I'm kind of curious if that feeling has persisted. Do you, how are you... How are you integrating things? Is it like a new language every day still for you? Um, no, I think that even just the word language, I didn't realize how much it occurred in the book until I was like copy editing or like, you know, getting the copy editor's notes. Um, it seemed, I didn't realize that. And I think that's a really common experience for writing. Like you don't even know what your themes are, what the 
overused words are until you really even have some distance. Like once I had not worked on the book for six months, did I start to notice that and be like, oh wow, I'm always talking about language. And in another one of the essays, um, I'm interested in the idea of a hand as a form of language, like what a hand is capable of. Um, so I think that's a perfect uh, theme for someone that's interested in language and writing of, um, you know, documenting that, like what, if we accept language as all these different things, you know, I'm interested in writing that down and pursuing that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely not, because in that, in that sentence, it's past tense, mm -hmm. like I learned one new mm -hmm. language each day. But for someone so. to state something like that, it makes me wonder, like, how how do they move forward? Like, are you integrating new things in different ways? Like, how are you integrating things now? Mm -hmm. If you wouldn't call it, um, I'm learning a new language every day, what is it? I don't know. That's a good question. I think I'm just, like, in the mind of that particular line, it's like, it was meant to portray this almost, like, coming-of-age notion that I think occurs in the book a lot of, like, learning you know, life lessons or, um, or learning, or experiencing things for the first time. I feel like there's a lot of firsts in the book. So the part in the end of this essay that I read from, there's um, a stalker. So the gaze is turned, you know, I'm, the essay starts where I'm looking at, um, you know, these boy bands and something kind of seemingly light, but it becomes a darker thing where I am suddenly the one being looked at in a potentially dangerous way. And um, I think in terms of that, it became about instinct as language. Mm -hmm. So I think like those moments of heat um, that I think so, most often in my life they've occurred in you know these um, maybe like high school, college years mm -hmm. where I felt like I didn't know anything. Mm -hmm. So now I guess I, I think I know more and I don't really, but I think that that sensation happens less to me. Because of that, you know, like, there's less of, this is the first time I've ever felt this, and more of, like, this reminds me of this other thing in my life, and so it's more of, like, a series of events than anything. Um, so going back for a moment to Pity the Animal. So Pity the Animal came out with Future Tense as a tiny little chapbook, and um, I actually don't know what the story is. Like, is that what gave you the, is that, did you build the essay around, or the book of essays around that particular essay, or is, how did the book come together? Certain essays um, have portions of them that were written years before the essay Pity the Animal, uh -huh. um, but they change shape over time. But certain sentences even are from like eight years ago, whereas Pity the Animal is from four years ago. Um, so, in that sense, none of the essays are intact. The way that Pity the Animal is the same as when it was printed as a chapbook, but the other ones have been rigorously edited for years. So um, they change shape, but I wouldn't say that I wrote it around mm -hmm. Pity the Animal. It's more that um, I noticed a level of clarity in that essay that I hadn't been able to accomplish before. So once I saw that, I thought, okay, now I feel like I kind of know what I'm doing, whereas these past like four years have just been, um, I don't know, experiments in some regard. But I think people, when they hear that word, that means that it doesn't matter. It did matter to me, but like it was just, I couldn't really quite get the voice that um, 
I just felt, I, when I read Pity the Animal, I felt like, okay, that is honest to me, and it feels complete. And all the essays I'd written before, I would like certain lines, but I'd never feel like they were done. I would always want to keep working on them. Uh -huh. So how did you get done with this then? Um, mainly through, I worked on, I would go to things like Tin House, the workshop. Um, so I really started wanting to go um, into a structured program. Like I really was craving more deadlines and um, a mentor situation. Mm -hmm. So I'd had that somewhat outside of a school situation, but I'd never, I only studied journalism. So I started really wanting and desiring more of a creative writing education. Mm -hmm. So I did go back to a grad program, um, and that helped me because it was really, really difficult for me. So it was like, whereas before I was writing, I don't really know, I would, it would change on and off, but I'd maybe write 20 pages every five months or something, every six months. I was just very romanticized this idea that every sentence was like I was spending a day on it or something. You know, I'd be like, oh, I'm gonna, you know, my book's gonna take forever, but it's gonna be really good. <laughs> I would just like have these basically excuses for not writing fast enough. And once I got into a program that was like 25 pages every month, that really kicked me into gear. So I feel like I've mixed feelings about MFA programs and grad programs. Yeah, it's so funny because when I think of you before the MFA program, I imagined you to be a disciplined writer, creating her own deadlines, etc. Um, and to know that you were mm -hmm. seeking more of that is fascinating because yeah. that, that's how that's how what I got from social media anyway. Mm. That somehow you were... Yeah, I mean, I do set deadlines for myself, but they just weren't... Uh, it wasn't working in the same way as when someone else was... And also, like, when I was paying for yeah, it. Spending money on it. <laughs> like, you know, like, a that, that's a motivator for me, honestly. So I accept that. And, I, you know, I did. Like, going into it, I thought, okay, well, that seems like an acceptable exchange at this point. Mm -hmm. Like, I pay in order to maybe have some structure and maybe learn something. So... Mm -hmm. So mentorship you are looking for too. I want yeah. to just ask you a few questions about like, sure. who are your mentors? How did you find your mentors if they weren't, I don't know if they're only from Bennington or elsewhere. Yeah, um, I had become really obsessed with Sarah Manguso's book, The Captain Lands in Paradise. It's a poetry book. And um, I took, I went to journalism school, but I took one poetry class and um, the person teaching it happened to teach all these amazing books that are like still my favorite books. Um, she also taught Letters to Wendy's by Joe Wenderoth. That's like maybe my favorite book. Um, but Sarah Manguso's book for some reason just um, really moved me and it was maybe the first book that made me cry. Like I was just like wow. <laughs> like I didn't know that words could do this. I'd never, I made scenes in high school but I never was like very bookish even. Like I wasn't, I felt like I wasn't well read. So, and like I was going to journalism school and um, I was very excited by this book and by poetry. Mm. So when I moved to New York from Arizona, I actually sought out Sarah Manguso. So I don't know if anyone here knows her, but. Um, I love a story like that when you just identify someone whose work you love and then you just go seek them out. Yeah, I think I was like young enough to be audacious about it. And I actually started working as a personal assistant, so I offered that in exchange. So it's like I could. Is that your idea? Yeah. I love that. Yeah. 
so it's like I know that you teach, but I can't afford to go to school. Really like looking for this old-fashioned mentorship type of deal. Because <laughs> I could just tell that I wasn't going to be as good as I wanted to be on my own. It just wasn't going to happen. You know, I could read, but I really desired something else. Um, but then after that, I joined, or I was accepted as a fellow for the Penn Central uh, USA Emerging yes. Voices Fellowships. And that also really helped me. So that was all before school. Yes. Um, and so that was here, and I worked with Ron Carlson, who's an amazing short story writer. And he really kind of was confused by me in my work. Yeah, what were you writing? <laughs> he was very, he's very traditional yeah, and really I, good at what he does. But I was writing really lyric, much more like conceptual, experimental pieces than are what are in this book. And I do still credit him for kind of showing me the power of a narrative structure or like an arc of yeah. something, how you can piece together all these different ideas. Mm -hmm. But if you have like some semblance of momentum, and I'm using my hands because he would always, um, he would do that, you know, rising and falling action type thing. But he would, he did that he drew that in this way that made sense to me, finally. <laughs> I had always known of that form, but um, I feel like I was able to just understand the rule that was set in place and that was expected of me and like subvert that. Because I don't think my essays really do that. They have like a hint of momentum, I think, that's like something is pushing you forward and you don't really know what it is. Mm -hmm. Or that's what I hope that they are like. Yes, the essays are so lyrical that I, find myself wondering who you're reading in terms of poetry now, or maybe during the writing of this book or around yeah. this book. I read a lot of um, Eve Babbitt's in the last year. So some of the essays were written um, because a teacher at Bennington said like, oh, you must read Eve Babbitt's, mm -hmm. like you must have read her and studied her. And it was one of those things where you don't know that someone's an influence, yes. and then like you see it, you're like, oh, uh, I feel like yes. there's like this almost like cosmic influence where I, um, I just really loved it so much. So I loved Eve Babbitt's, and so it's not poetry, obviously, but it's um, it has that momentum that we're talking about, and that's what I really am interested in right now, reading, and I think for the last year or two of writing the book, of. Um, just this kind of like breathless pace of like I have to tell you this and then this happened and then this happened like so I really like that and um, Lynn Tillman was a big influence for me too her stories just kind of um, I don't know they always surprise me so I just love the way that she can write about certain things and she's really interested in dreams mm -hmm. um, I had a teacher tell me in workshop like you can't write an essay in a dream. And I took that as like a challenge. <laughs> I was like, I, I'm gonna do that now. Because <laughs> he, was, he was just arguing that it was too dreamy. And um, it really led me to think like, okay, who am I reading that I love when they do that? And Lynn Tolman is one of them. So, yeah. Um, okay, I want to also ask you about, um, this is somewhat related to the book, but about artist collaborations. Mm -hmm. I mean, you mentioned working with artists in the book. Yeah. But I'm curious, because I know that you also have done collaborations with people, and so I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, well, I worked as a performance facilitator on a Marina Abramovich show. That was the biggest thing where we were all working together to 
kind of create this space that she had curated where it was sensory deprivation. Um, it, it was revolved around that. And the idea was that the room um, in the gallery would create, would generate its own energy. So that's where it came from. And um, so my job was to um, blindfold people and then put noise canceling headphones on theirs and guide them into a room they hadn't seen. So it was about the size of the store, but no one knew even how big it was. They thought it could be even bigger, it could be very small. And then if you think about all the strangers that are walking around in it, um, that's really strange too. And um, so I've, because of that, I pursued these longer, they're called long durational performances. So it means six hours or longer. Um, and I have footage of them, but I haven't done it to the point of like performing them um, at a gallery or something. But they're usually very small, like one I did where we um, mirrored each other's movements. So my friend would move in a specific way and I would try to mimic every single thing. And I feel like those, perform or those performances informed lines like, you know, what are, I think hands are the same thing as language or, you know, things like that. It became like a six hour dance and um, I think these kinds of collaborations and attention to performance art that I didn't have um, when I started the book um, really began to inform the kind of physicality of essays for me where I start to really think about bodies. So I'm always interested in that in other people's work too. Do you have any collaborations coming up or that you want to do or are you working on? Um, I don't. I'm really focused on the book that I started. Yeah. What's the book you started? A novel. So, yeah. <laughs> Can you say anything more about it? Mm. I could, but no. <laughs> yeah, I just, I feel like, um, I feel a little superstitious about ideas sometimes. I don't know if you do. Do you ever? Occasionally, occasionally, I yeah. feel superstitious. I feel like sometimes when you say the idea out loud, it dissipates it. I'm so surprised that it's a novel. Yeah, I think through going back to school, I actually got over my fear of, like, a genre. I was like, oh, well... I just, you know, I write essays. I guess that's all I'll ever write. <laughs> and in school, I just thought, actually, no, like, I'm just going to do something else. Yeah. So by the end, like, when I, I think a year before the book was done, I thought, yeah, I'll just write essays forever. And then when the book was really done, I was like, I really am done with essays for a while. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a lot of yourself. I mean, I'm sure novelists and poets feel this way too, but um, it was not... It was not a fun process for me, and that's what you know. It's satisfying in the end, in, to some degree, but um, I felt almost that it was like too dangerous. <laughs> in that sense of like, I wrote it to come true. Like it almost, it just felt like um, it started to be too intense for me. Actually, where I actually started to desire what I'd already always been afraid of, of creating a whole world out of nothing. That really petrified me, and then less so once I had written about my desires and <laughs> like the deepest part of myself or myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, that makes me think of persona and how often that kind of shows up in the book but it, it and how interesting it is when you're like writing essays 
when or you know when I write memoir or something it's like people have an idea now about who you are yeah um, and you're on social media to some extent mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so you're having to navigate these personas yeah and so on some level how how do you do that they're all so different I think you you must think that too like yeah. with writing there yeah like I have different personas for like different things yeah, yeah. With writing, I like I like the idea of the essay as like a curated version of the self, and I find it disturbing when people read it not that way. <laughs> so we'll say that as like a disclaimer. Like it's just um, I think it's important that the writer choose you know which part of themselves they're revealing. So I think if it's if the essay accomplishes. Um, this feeling of transparency, then that's good. But I think sometimes people can read nonfiction, memoir essays, and think like, oh, well, I know that person now. Right. And I think that that's where persona, I'm like, the persona, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> I think that I always think about it. So I'm not, I'm not sitting there thinking like, oh, this is my persona writing or something. But it is something that I use in editing in terms of like a curation of my work and like even a voice. Like I think my voice sometimes go really goes really like grandiose, you know. <laughs> like the there's two essays in here that are quite short. The they're um, called the It Speaks. So there's two different versions of it, and those are meant to be like the Freudian id of you know this really hungry, desperate version of oneself. Um, so that one it's specifically designated and titled to indicate that that it's not like it's different from the other. Um, voices in the book and um, yeah social media is really weird yeah it is very weird <laughs> but I like it overall um, I think um, yeah I think of myself as being still pretty private so I like using it as a tool for my writing but I don't really think of it beyond that a tool for like promoting the event tonight right. <laughs> you know yeah. like I'll do that or um, I don't know. Like, is there, so, like, persona doesn't show up in some way to do something else there? Yeah, I don't really think about it. Like, I don't know if I could articulate that. Um, I guess my Twitter persona is probably, like, a little sassy. Someone told me once that it's bratty, which I don't really think it is. Yeah, in fact, <laughs> but someone do, has told me that, that, like, oh, you're the bratty Twitter. It's strange. <laughs> because, again, it's, like, what I knew from about <laughs> you before meeting, I thought, like, Okay, this is a serious, disciplined writer who doesn't reveal very much about themselves uh -huh. on social media, which I respect and appreciate. And then when the same writer like has a book of essays, and I wonder, like, oh, how are they gonna do that now? Because now you will have, as I'm sure you already have, lots of people who believe certain things about you because of what they read in your book or believe they know you mm -hmm. on some level, and. They're just out there, like waiting to chat with you online. Yeah, I remember seeing. I think it was an interview with Sia. Is that how you say her name, Sia? Um, and she said, in defense of her um, masking of her face, uh -huh. that mystery—I forget how she worded it—but that like mystery is one of the only commodities left, or something. And um, I always, I was like, yeah, that's kind of how I feel. Like I love that, and. Um, yeah, I think that that has played out in social media. Like people, 
I think generally like want more if they feel like they're not getting the full story. So <laughs> I get that reaction and then I don't respond to it. But um, I think that that is true. Like the people are um, excited or surprised at this point by any sort of mystery. Those people are so used to seeing like exactly where everyone is or what they ate and things like that. So I like playing with that because ultimately I like social media. It's part of like how Wendy and I became friends. So yeah, yeah, yeah. The feedback that I get about social media is always so fascinating to me. Like how people perceive how who you are there, and then they read your book, and then they have this whole other perception. But then they approach you on social media through the lens of what you wrote in the book, and it's just it can get super confusing. Yeah, um, I haven't had that much response to it in that capacity yet. I think the book is still new enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if I should take up more time or if you're dying to ask questions. Um, I can keep asking questions. <laughs> one more and then I'll try. All right, you should let, me, let me pick one of my... This is kind of a... Um, a more personal one mm -hmm. that um, one of the things that really resonated for me in reading your book and made me wonder like wow did she feel this reading something of mine because writing about like being young and like like hanging out with certain types of men men who you're gonna like sit in their laps and they're drinking beer and like they are probably dangerous etc developing a certain kind of relationship with harm yeah. As, as a young woman. Yeah. Um, and I love, you You actually use a phrase that I love because it evoked so much for me, um, harm swayed toward me. And I think that I too have tried to use harm as like a sort of character mm -hmm. in trying to describe those situations and how complex they are. They yeah. seem really basic on the surface, but they're very complex. And it made me wonder, about how harm operates in your life now, if at all? Hmm. It's quite different now. I think that's what I mean in terms of like writing essays. Like I think it um, perpetuated certain things in me that was like, in, and I didn't expect. And um, I think since being done with the book, I've been, it's like, it's been different in some regards, so I can't quite articulate it in a way that will make sense, I think. But, um, you know, I, that's why I, I like the title for this, of, is because I went through like 50 titles, I couldn't really decide. And um, I'm really content with this one because it feels to me like a document of different selves. And I think I even misspoke earlier, I was like, from myself, <laughs> you know? And, um, that is that feels true to me. It feels like essays are a great place to document certain parts of oneself. And um, something happens when I finish writing it that it almost feels like someone else wrote it. So um, it just feels a little bit detached from me. So it's like I recognize myself in it and then certain other things I don't. But I think um, in thinking about certain things so much, I don't think about them anymore. <laughs> like certain obsessions, I think, do cycle through you, and I think that's happened to me. <laughs> mm -hmm. So well, I would be curious to read the essay that might look at like how that how harm might operate in your life 
ongoing or as you get older yeah because it changes over time and I find that really fascinating when I'm reading about young women's stories like mm-hmm. yours or like mine where some you you watch a revolution occur over time yeah. internally for them and yet they may return to that same territory mm-hmm. later but it's going to look very different right yeah so I'm going to wait for that essay. Okay, great. I'll write it in like two years. Yes. <laughs> okay, cool. We're both slow writers and we're, we're, yeah, like I'm very happy to be a slow writer. I'm happy to know another slow writer. Yeah. I'll still have ideas for essays, like as if I'm still writing the book, yeah. but I, I'm not really working on them. So maybe someday. Does anyone have any questions before we wrap up? Yeah. I have a couple. Okay, cool. Backing off of Wendy's question, it's almost a selfish question of <clears throat> writing essays. Once you've written and drafted, finalized, and published your essays, does it feel complete? So, this essay is a story, it's complete, you're not thinking about it anymore. Does it feel like that story is still within you and it can take another shape? Or, and maybe that's no, I get it. Yeah, um, because I actually have a pretty severe thought about this. Like once I write it down, I feel like almost it doesn't have to live in my head or inside me. Yeah. So I actually, that's one of the reasons I liked uh, the idea of writing a book of essays. It seemed to me like this neat box of things from my life that obsessed me. So in that regard, I feel somewhat far away from it, although I recognize that it is from my life. Yeah. But um, but yeah. So I'm not sure, like, I, you know, I purposely switched to fiction in this very different novel that I'm trying to work on. So for right now, I'm not encountering um, the problem of, like, oh, well, I already wrote about that. I can't put it in this. But um, I like when writers do that, actually. Like, Maggie Nelson does that. David Shields does that. Um, I'm interested when writers do that. They'll just take, you know, if they're nonfiction writers, inevitably something will still apply to the next book. Yeah, yeah, like if you read them, if you read all of their books, then you notice it, but otherwise it's not, it's not noticeable, you know. So my other question was, yeah. um, you, you had an interview with Brad Misty, yeah. and he had mentioned your, um, I don't know what it's called, like your trailer for your, for your book. Yeah. I was wondering what your inspiration was for, yeah. for that, and also like the imagery, I was wondering what your inspiration was. Um, that was filmed in this um, Castelletto that's at the workshop where I teach, that was mentioned in my, my bio. It's um, a week-long workshop in Italy that I teach twice a year with the publisher of Tyrant Books. So there's this gorgeous, um, I think, 17th century Castelletto that's like crumbling, and um, you're not even really supposed to go inside it, but I liked the idea of um, just kind of using that as a visual space and just playing with that, so that's what I did, but I wrote um, I call it my theme song. I wrote that um, at a residency um, on the piano there, and then basically I just made the video for it. But I like I did a I did a trailer for Pity the Animal, and I like this idea of having something visual accompany something that's not. So thanks. Yeah. You said you studied journalism. How does that show up in the process of writing and final product? Um, I remember dialogue really well <laughs> um, because I, I feel like the training really helped me um, actually like I can 
um, I can write something totally different than what I'm hearing. Like I can, I feel like that sharpened that sense for me where I can do two things simultaneously. And I've done that where I'll write kind of like at an event or something where I'll write um, based on something I'm hearing or experiencing. Um, and I think things like that have helped it. And then journalism shows up in the book itself, like my training for journalism. And even the moment that I uh, realized I wouldn't be a good journalist because <laughs> I was in a, a courtroom and all I could focus on was um, this person's face rather than like what was actually being said or if he was guilty or not. Like I, I had decided in my head this person was guilty and I just thought maybe this isn't the right field for me. I don't know. It seems like I'm a little bit biased. Um, so yeah, I think I'm, I'm happy that I studied it. I don't like regret, you know, oh, I wish I would have studied English or something. I'm, I'm happy and content with the way things played out with my writing because I think it also helped me um, write in this kind of tight way too, where things are really contained. I like that in, in the reading. So I try to write that way as well. Yeah, I think that's actually like the key. I play tricks on myself all the time. Um, I do. <laughs> like things like setting a timer, you know, and you just like can't stop writing. I'll, you know, I'll do it for like a half hour at a time. Just keep your hands moving. Um, I also sometimes blindfold myself to write because what I'm writing is so scary to me sometimes. Um, even if it's not that scary later, it's like just getting it down is um, intimidating to me somehow. So I've experimented with that to pretty good effect where um, the next time I read it, I'm like, wow, who, like, who wrote that? <laughs> like, it seems very foreign because you actually haven't taken it in the way that your brain usually takes in language. So um, I'm really big on tricks. Like I, when I teach, I do that a lot of um, time constraints or visual constraints. Um, and I also do, I do this in the book a little bit of um, a quote of something to kind of get you going. So I use that a lot for the free rights of what I'm talking about of just, we use a quote from a movie that, you know, like when you watch something, you read something, you go, hmm. You know, like things that I that I respond that way to, I'll try and kind of put that at the top of a Word document. Yeah, and kind of, it's almost like it becomes like a response then. And um, I think sometimes by giving your brain a task like that, you can kind of free yourself from this paranoia that you're doing badly. You know, so that's kind of what I like doing, little tricks. Anyone else? Or? Should we wrap up? Okay, cool. Anything else? I have one little request um, of everyone. I actually made this request of Chelsea. There is a section here that I haven't stopped thinking about. It's very short. Um, and I kind of want to do a little bit of an experiment with you around this section. Um, this would just require you taking a selfie of yourself, but you're being given directions on how. <laughs> so can will you participate? Will you take out your phone if you don't have that? If, if not, it's only going to take yeah, a minute. Don't yeah, worry. Yeah. <laughs> so 
Chelsea's just going to read this little short section, and you're going to listen, and you're going to look at your phone. <laughs> but then, no, wait, so then should they tell, take the selfie? Like, you're gonna, at the end of this is when you're going to take the selfie. Okay, it's this yeah. part, right? And then this yeah. part. Okay. Yeah. When I first started modeling, my only, my only tricks and methods were from America's Next Top Model. Smile with your eyes, put your hand on your hips, and arch forward like a hunchback if you're wearing a tour. Model with your whole body, all the way down to your fingers and toes. But as I got older, I narrowed it down to one trick, one simple private action. Think of someone you want to touch whom you cannot touch, someone forbidden. Think of a room where there is nothing except the two of you. Still, you cannot touch them. Think of the heat between two hands about to touch, the language that exists in that silence. Now, turn the camera into the face of the beloved and tell it everything without speaking. You might think this is too subtle, but if you live in your mind, the heat of your longing can be captured on film. I have proof. Anything, anything good come out of that? Or you buy the book and you practice them. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.